Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. There's so much happening these days, it seems. I, I don't know if one can say, ever say, oh, there's not much happening these days, but it seems like a particularly um, intense time in our culture and in the world. <clears throat> As I was in the internal world of the the retreat at the uh, Insight Meditation Society, and I'd be, you know, following the news and uh, connecting out there in the world. And then, as the as the people came out of um, out of silence, we did a little integration, and I wanted to share with them a little bit about what's going on in the world because uh, it seems like it's it's changing a little bit each each day. Uh, you know, between the economy and politics and uh, protests and world events from disasters to also protests around the world. And um, so I was kind of sharing with them, well, this is going on and that's going on. Wow, really? And a few people thanked me like they didn't want to. It's, it's hard to come out of a retreat and, and be in complete silence and then you, you see so much happening that you weren't a part of in the last chunk of time. And uh, with so much going on, it, it, it reminded me of... Um, it seems like there's there's more intense polarization and there's also more intense consciousness than ever before. And it reminded me of um, this uh, statement that my friend Roger Walsh, who's a, a brilliant mind, uh, writer, transpersonal um, psychologist, and... Uh, very much socially engaged in in the world, uh, said a number of years ago. Uh, the way he put it was, uh, we're in in these times. We're in a race between fear and consciousness. And I wanted to get to even below the the fear, uh, which is uh, ignorance. The, which is the root of fear, at least in in Buddhist teachings. We're in a race between ignorance and consciousness. <clears throat> you know that Chinese curse, may you be born in interesting times. I, you know, sometimes you can think of it as a curse, sometimes you can think of it as a as a blessing that you get to participate in these interesting times. But these are interesting times. So, in terms of ignorance and consciousness, the Buddha talked about it in, uh, in one discourse. He looked at his own mind, if you're familiar, I, I've mentioned this once or twice before, uh, in, in one 
Sutta uh, in Majjhima number 19, where he, he was looking at his mind before he became enlightened, and he saw that sometimes he'd have thoughts that were filled with desire, ill will, and cruelty. This is before, just before he was enlightened, you know, he was seeing this. So cut yourself a little slack if you find every now and then you have some thoughts like that going through your mind. And he, he was just being really uh, honest. He said, I see I have these thoughts, and when they come, they lead to my own affliction, or the affliction of someone else, or the affliction of both of us. And then he saw, as he kept on investigating his mind, sometimes he would have thoughts of um, the opposite, non-desire or renunciation or simplicity, uh, non-ill will or kindness, loving kindness or kindness, and non-cruelty or compassion. And he said when he had those thoughts, he saw whenever he had those thoughts, uh, they didn't lead to any affliction for himself, for another, or for both of, of them. So when he saw that, being the Buddha about to be, he said, oh, I just won't have those unpleasant thoughts, and I'll cultivate those other thoughts. Um, easier said than done for most of us. But the main point is that there's a choice. He saw that there's a choice in our minds uh, if we can see clearly enough what thoughts we want to feed and what thoughts we don't want to feed. And from what I've seen in my own practice, it's, it's not so realistic to say for most of us, oh, I just won't have those thoughts anymore. But rather, the possibility, oh, I can train my heart and my mind not to believe those thoughts, take them to be real, and get hooked by them, and then speak or act from those thoughts that lead to suffering, my own or, or others. And the more I cultivate thoughts when they arise of kindness and simplicity and compassion, then um, the happier I will be. But seeing that there's a choice is huge. Most people don't realize that there's a choice. Sometimes even when you do realize that there's a choice and you see it, it's easier said than done to let go of those thoughts that hook us because it's such deep conditioning. So you have to then have another level of compassion for when you get hooked by those thoughts, even though you think you know better, even though you know better here, but your body just jumps into the reactive mode and leads to um, unwise speech or actions. But the more we can train ourselves, the more we are headed towards 
well-being and uh, happiness and peace. In uh, uh, also in the Buddhist teachings, he separated these into each of those three uh, um, those three groups of thoughts are part of two main kinds of um, of thoughts called unwholesome thoughts, akusala, that lead to suffering or that are suffering, and wholesome thoughts, kusala, that are related to happiness and lead to more happiness. So here we are not only within ourselves, but on a societal canvas where there are um, energies that are motivated by ignorance, fear, anger, ill will, cruelty, greed. Um, And then there are also um, actions that are motivated by kindness, caring, sincere connection, wisdom, love. And it's good to see that it's not just out there. You know, you read the newspaper and you say, come on, you know, how, how could they say or do or whatever? It's not just out there, it's right in here. I love this quote by um, Alexander Sol- Solzhenitsyn who says, if only it were so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being and who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? It's right inside of us. It plays out on the the bigger stage uh, just the nature of human consciousness. But the interesting times, why these are interesting times, is that um, the stakes are much higher now than ever before, as we all know, because there are pressures from climate change, if you believe in that, There are changes to the natural world that are human-sourced. And also, in this more global world, what happens in one area of the world affects everybody else. What happens in, in the states around subprime mortgages affects the economy all over the place or what happens in Greece affects every place else. In the Buddhist time, actually, is some interesting um, metaphors the Buddha gives about how um, if you have have uh, something, have some 
some uh, toxic material, then you know you can pour it into the earth, and there won't be any any problem. The earth can handle it, basically he's saying, or it will go into the air, and that's all. Or you can put it into the water, into the ocean, and no problem. Um, now things have changed. You know, now there's no more room for all of that stuff to be absorbed. Mm. So the stakes are higher, and there's, it seems, more craziness than ever before because we're more advanced, so our levels of greed have more repercussions and our levels of confusion have greater repercussions. And we find ourselves awash in not only stuff, but a crowded, crowded mind as, if, as never before. So that's one side, that it's, it seems like it's crazier than ever before. And I want to share with you um, a little piece from my favorite writer. I think I've, I've mentioned him before, my absolute favorite writer in the world, uh, named Mark Morford. Anybody a Mark Morford fan here? Every Wednesday, it's like, oh, it's Wednesday. It's Mark Morford's column, which he used to write in the San Francisco Chronicle in the, the hardcover, uh, in, the, uh, in the print edition, but he's just too far out, and so he's no longer in the print edition. Now he's just on the online edition. But um, he's brilliant. This is, uh, this is his column from last week. It's called Hurry Up. Get more done and die. That's the name of it. I'll just read a a little piece of it. Your terrifying word of the day is microtasking. And it comes by way of a relatively humble, ostensibly helpful article I read via one of those perky little do-it-yourself blogs that exist to tell you a million ways to tweak and back your entire existence Oh, sorry, to tweak and hack your entire existence to gain maximum productivity, efficiency, and improved overall time management. Because, well, if that's not the true meaning of this manic American life, what is? The advice was horrifyingly simple. When you find yourself pausing in between normal projects and work tasks for anything more than, say, 30 seconds... Why not take those tiny moments and, well, do more things? I mean, you're just sort of sitting there, right? What sort of things? Fast things, little things, otherwise inconsequential things you don't care about otherwise, like clearing your junk mail, refilling the stapler, changing your voicemail message, retweeting someone's Twitter blip, or giving a momentary damn about something you need not give a damn about otherwise. But hey, what else are you going to do? Breathe? <laughs> Feel? Merely exist? What are you, a hippie? <laughs> it's a fascinating and, yes, terrifying idea, really, that if you could just maximize your output a little bit more, if you could cram into all open white space another thing to do, 
wow, think of all you could get done by the end of the day. Think of how much you could get checked off your list. And I'll just skip to later section in the article. Listen to this. In any 48-hour period in 2010, says a stunning bit I just read in The Atlantic, more data was created than had been created by all of humanity in the past 30,000 30, years. By the year 2020, that same amount of data will be created in a single hour. Go ahead, swallow hard. It is no longer possible to sit quietly on the park bench without checking your Facebook feed, chatting with Siri, and waving to the CCTV cameras. It is no longer possible to be astonished at the wonder of your footfalls along the forest path and not feel the urge to check email, find the nearest Starbucks, hipstamatic the hell out of that beautiful fallen tree. You cannot just sit in your car along a quiet country road without the GPS beeping that you took a wrong turn as OnStar politely blows up your car. <laughs> How easily we forget. Time expands, time contracts. Work will swell or diminish to fill a given space. You can do ten things in an hour or one thing in ten. You can go to Spirit Rock Meditation Center for two solid weeks and do absolutely nothing but wander the grounds in silence for 12 hours a day, and time will look at you like you're utterly insane as your breath and body thank you for all eternity. You can conversely microtask until your heart implodes and time merely will laugh and snort and find someone else to destroy. <clears throat> Mark Morford, M-O-R-F-O-R-D. You can just Google him. <clears throat> so on the, on the one hand, things are crazier than ever before. Imagine that in a 48-hour period, more data created than in all of human history. That's a lot to absorb, isn't it? <clears throat> There's no way you can't absorb it. And we get spun out and subjected to all these messages. I was reading, um, uh, my f a friend turned me on to this book, um, which I was reading while I was, I was away, called Deer Hunting with Jesus. It's really brilliant. Has, has anybody read it? It's quite, it's quite brilliant by this guy, Joe Badgent. Uh, Dispatches from America's Class War. This guy was... Um, he was raised, he grew up in rural Virginia, rural redneck territory. He, he grew up there. And then somehow he saw another reality and lived in you know, California and in, uh, and in other places where there were other ideas. And then he, um, and he's a, this brilliant writer, a lot like Morford, and then he went back to Virginia to uh, be with his family and uh, for, th I think, three years or so, really want to understand why people think the way they do there. 
I mean, he remembered growing up, but he wanted to take a look at the culture. And it's a brilliant series of essays about a whole other way of thinking and why people think the way they do and maybe seemingly would be um, voting against their own self-interest. And where you, where you, some people who have a different perspective might say, why do they think the way they do? And then when you read why they think the way they do, there's no blame there. The, the people who might think differently than somebody else have just as much care and just as much um, love of um, freedom and goodness um, and they have taken in information that doesn't serve one could say their own their own best interests but to see we are subjected to all of this information much of which is purposely trying to manipulate the mind um, it just it, there's there's a, a, a real compassion that can come from understanding other points of view. So it's crazier than ever with the mind being manipulated and all of this intensity that just fosters more separation and fear and greed and hatred and confusion and ignorance. And at the same time, there's more consciousness and wisdom than there's ever been on this planet. There are teachings now that are available and commonplace that were extremely esoteric and hard to understand that are part of the common culture, you know, interconnectedness, you know, oh sure, that, that's kind of like, oh, the world isn't flat anymore. And there is a connection on the global level of, uh, might that be yours? Yeah. <laughs> right. um, there is a connection of consciousness and of ideas and of caring and of compassion and of mm, um, wise action in a way that's never been available before. And we can see just how when things when an idea gets sparked, how quickly it can possibly gain traction and ignite the best in, in us as well as the worst in us. But there's still as much goodness in us as there ever was. And in fact, I wanted to share with you, this is what really um, inspired me to, uh, to explore this topic, I wanted to want to share with you an article that perhaps some of you might have come across. It was in the Huffington Post and uh, 
a couple of other places, about just where we are in the trajectory of human development that quite surprised me, that also quite um, inspired me. Uh, I'll just read a little bit, maybe more. It seems as if violence is everywhere, but it's really on the run. Yes, thousands of people have died in unrest from Africa to Pakistan while terrorist plots and bombings and kidnappings, war drags on in Afghanistan, in peaceful Norway, a massacre of 69 youths in July, in Mexico, headless victims of drug cartels turn up. This month, eight people were shot to death in a California hair salon. Yet historically, we've never had it this peaceful. That's the thesis of three new books one by prominent Harvard psychologist Steven Pinker. Statistics reveal dramatic reductions in war de- deaths, family violence, racism, rape, murder, and all sorts of mayhem. <clears throat> it runs counter to what the news media is reporting and essentially what we feel in our guts. His findings... Pinker's findings are based on peer-reviewed studies by other academics using examinations of graveyards, surveys, and historical records to come up with these statistical significant facts. The number of people killed in battle, calculated per 100,000 population, has dropped by 1,000-fold over the centuries as civilization evolved. Before there were organized countries, battles killed on average more than 500 out of every 100,000 people. In 19th century France, it was 70. In the 20th century, with two world wars and a few genocides, it was 60. Now battlefield deaths are down to three-tenths of a person per 100,000. The rate of genocide deaths per world population was 1,400 times higher in 1942 and in 2008. There were fewer than 20 democracies in 1946. Now there are close to 100. The number of authoritarian countries has dropped from a high of almost 90 in 1976 to about 25 now. Pinker says one of the main reasons for the drop in violence is that we're smarter. IQ tests show that the average teenager is smarter with each generation. The tests are constantly adjusted to keep the average at 100. And a teenager who now would score 100 would have scored 118 in 1950 and 130 in 1910. So this year's average kid would have been a near genius a century ago. That increase in intelligence translates into a kinder, gentler world, Pinker says. Now, one can argue when you talk, whether you're talking about knowledge or you're talking about wisdom, but I'll just go on. As we get smarter, we try to think of better ways of getting everyone to turn their swords into plowshares at the t- same time, Pinker said. Human life has become more precious than it used to be. 
Murder in European countries has steadily fallen from nearly 100 per 100,000 people in the 14th and 15th centuries to about 1 per 100,000 people now. The U.S. rate of husbands killed by their wives has dropped by 1.2 per 100,000 in 1976 to just two-tenths. I know you're waiting to hear what the other side is, too. For wives killed by their husbands, the rate has slipped from 1.4 to 0.8 over the same time period. Not quite as dramatic, but still. Rape is in the United States is down 80% since 1973. Lynchings, which used to occur at a rate of 150 a year, have disappeared. Discrimination against black people and gay people is down, as is capital punishment, the spanking of children, and child abuse. Even when you add in terrorism, the world is far less violent, Pinker says. Uh, Terrorism doesn't account for many deaths. September 11th was just off the scale. There was never a terrorist attack before or after that had as many deaths. What it does generate is fear. The Human Security Report of 2009-2010 is a worldwide examination of war and violence and published as a book. It cites jarringly low numbers. This is a different different source. Um, Although the number of wars has increased by 25%, they've been minor ones. The average annual battle death toll has dropped from nearly 10,000 per conflict in the 1950s to fewer than 1,000 in the 21st century. And the number of deadliest wars, those that kill at least 1,000 people a year, has fallen by 78% since 1988. So... Isn't that nice to know that it's not all bad news? We just hear the bad news one day after another. Uh, That is, after all, what sells newspapers and what shocks the senses and grabs your attention. But we're actually becoming more conscious as a species. That doesn't negate the fact or mitigate the fact that the stakes are higher than ever. So it's not like we can just say, oh, cool, we're going in the right direction because we're also, although we're going much slower, we're closer to a cliff there. So back to this race between ignorance and consciousness. How to hold it all. How to make space and breathe and not get freaked out by despair or frustration or hopelessness or outrage if the outrage isn't put into constructive ways. Do you do that, or do you just say, I can't, I can't handle it, and you ignore it, pretend everything is okay? 
again from Morford. He says, what do you do? He's, by the way, he's a yoga teacher and uh, besides a cynic, he's, uh, he's, he's very spiritual. Here's what you do. You observe and you engage. You read and you partake. You march and you occupy and you feel it all way down deep. <clears throat> you get in there and participate the hell out of this messy, glorious world because you are, after all, bound to it, part of it, one of a billion nautilus shells floating in the great slipstream. Nautilus shells are, are uh, um, facing uh, real danger of extinction. At the same time, um, you maybe realize one mandatory, life-saving, overarching idea, the karma of the world is not yours to take on. This is what the wise ones say. Care about your issues. Change what you can in your own world. Love the hell out of everyone around you like a dog loves peanut butter. But realize the collective burdens of the planet will crush you dead in an instant if you try to shoulder them all. So here's my humble advice in this Nautilus-deprived world. Don't be one of those people. Don't succumb to the boring hell pit of teeming misery. It's just too easy. Care deeply. Love messily. Handle your own karma like an awestruck child handles a pile of wet clay. And as the mystics remind us again and again, it's the only thing that ever seems to work. So, you're engaged, you care, it's too much if you stop caring, that deadens your spirit. You participate, you stay informed when you're up to it, you stay away when it's too much, you do your part and you hold a, a vision of the possibility because the more people that hold the vision of the possibility, since there is more consciousness than ever, it keeps that part of the human spirit alive as perhaps maybe you've been inspired in, in recent days by possibility. You know, like that line, fortunes change quicker than the swish of a horse's tail. Just when you think, oh no, I know where this is heading. In a moment, you have no idea where it's heading. But the more you throw in the towel and say, oh, what's the point? It's one more towel in the pile. And the more you see, oh, what if I do my part to care and to love and to be as conscious as I can? Then you become an agent of that for others. And we, that's what we're all, I think, on this, this crazy stage to do, is to just remind ourselves of the goodness that's, that's inside. And that things can change, particularly as you magnetize that inspiring vision. And I want to read to you, uh, I've read this before, I think here, by Howard Zinn, the inspiring piece where he says, 
Howard's in the great historian, an optimist isn't necessarily a blithe, slightly sappy whistler in the dark of our time. To be hopeful in bad times is not just foolishly romantic. It's based on the fact that human history is a history not only of cruelty, but of compassion, sacrifice, courage, kindness. What we choose to emphasize in this complex history will determine our lives. If we see only the worst, it destroys our capacity to do something. If we remember those times and places, and there are so many when people have behaved magnificently, this gives us energy to act and at least the possibility of sending this spinning top of a world in a different direction. So in this race between ignorance and consciousness, who knows if it's good news or bad news? You could make a case either way. But why not hold the best case scenario in your, in your mind and in your heart? <clears throat> so I'll just stop here and see any comments or questions or things that you might want to share or reflect on. Going twice. Nothing to say. Uh, just, I invite you for a moment to feel what goes on right now in your own heart. Without jumping to any conclusions or any answers, how have you been processing all of the stuff in this, these interesting times. What does it do to you? And what's your response, both internal and external? What's your conversations like these days? Frustration, despair, Inspiration, outrage, understanding, love, separation, connection. And not right or wrong, not good or bad, but just to see all the different parts that get touched in you and how you want to express yourself in this world. And know that what comes out of your heart and your mind and your, your being um, affects everybody around you.
ask this. Um, let's see. It feels like a very precious and um, just magical and exciting time right now. And I think I'm, I really feel like an increasing sense of commonality with everyone else. Like that we're all like in this situation and we're not happy with it. And like for me, I know that um, my mom was in, at Cal in 68 and she dropped out because it was just so exciting and she wanted to be out on the streets. And I really feel like I just want to drop everything and camp out like in a way because I feel like there's a lot to be learned. Um, and yeah, it just feels like precious time and... I don't want to take it for granted. I know that support is needed, and it could disappear, you know, so it needs nurturance. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. It's an interesting thing also, uh, particularly if you're looking at the, the Occupy situation, how karma, how action creates reaction, creates uh, creates more reaction when there's peace people are inspired when there's violence it begets violence and then when there's when there's violence people are turned off but when there's counter violence then people are committed more and just so many in such a a, a, a hotbed of of um, intense feelings, there's so many different ways for the game to play out. Um, but to keep in mind the Buddha saying, hatred never ceases by hatred. Hatred only ceases by love. This is an ancient and eternal law. And to really embody that, you're not just you're not just coming into your own peace, you become a, a source of inspiration for, for others. I'm just really impressed with the movement and how there hasn't been any violent reaction to the Iraqi vet who got injured. And, um, you know, there are like 3,000 people on the streets of Oakland last night just peacefully marching, just, just walking, not, no vandalism, nothing. And, um, you know, the supervisors coming out last night to protect the Occupy movement in San Francisco, there were five supervisors there, which many of you probably know, but um, they were there to have peacefulness and not have them have the police come in and, and create a violent scene like it, what had happened in, yeah. in Oakland. Yeah. And um, it's just really exciting. I feel kind of like you do with... Um, you know, this this house and all these responsibilities, but all I can do is is keep informed about what's going on and, and go and visit the different movements, and it's just, it's really amazing and exciting and how cooperative people are working together respectfully, and it's it's truly love in action. These, you know, the 99% are waking up, and mm -hmm. it's it's amazing. It's beautiful. It's, it's yeah. very exciting. Anything else? Yeah. Um, the other day I was um, calling for some tech support and I, I asked where um, the person helping me was located and he said Egypt. 
And I said, well, how are you? And he said, <laughs> And you really meant it, huh? I did. Yeah. And he said, how we're fighting for democracy, do you know? And I said, people here were crying when you were in the square. And we followed your courage and your many heroes. And we pray for your booming democracy. And he started crying. Mm. And he said, thank you. And there was this moment of connectedness. Mm. And it was so, I thought of all the people at the call centers. You know, there was opportunity. So. Mm. Thank you. Yeah, we're a lot more connected than we realize. Just a, a few numbers away. Oh, thank you. I care. Yeah. Okay. So. Hi. Hi. Um, yeah, I mean, I've been, it's like I've been going back and forth from like anxiety, like extreme anxiety at times to like gratitude and, um, you know, inspiration when I'm here and I'm listening to you and it just, um, I guess it's just when I'm in anxiety is like, it can, it can be really scary. Like I woke up with the earthquake this morning and I was like, and I, my body was like shaking and then I hear, you know, we had there were people screaming out the window last night, and like my mind just like going. You know, the fears like escalating, and and then I have to, and then I'm you know I'm a therapist, so I have to go back to the school the next day, and I have to be this like stronghold for pe- for other people, and yeah, so it's just been challenging for me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and this is this is one of the unique things that we can bring to the environment if we are practicing, if we're practicing stillness as we sit here with our minds and we see all the stuff, greed, hatred, and delusion, love, compassion, and wisdom, um, just wild thoughts that can take us anywhere and thoughts of, of, uh, of ease and through the whole roller coaster ride, find a place of centeredness that just sits here and opens up to it all with a centeredness and a presence and a knowing, loving awareness. This is what we're developing and what we bring out to the world. This is the gift of practice that your centeredness, and I could should say, your ability to just remember to breathe, your ability to just remember to create a little space in your heart and your mind so you don't have to take it all on at once and just be a kind of um, loving presence. That reminds others as well. You know, it's like that uh, that image that uh, Thich Nhat Hanh talks about, the, the boat people, the, the ones who made that crossing, and so many boats didn't make it as they were fleeing Vietnam. The ones that made the, the, the crossing successfully were the ones that had at least one person in the boat 
remember to stay calm. The ones that didn't were the ones that that the boats uh, sank. So here we are sharing our practice. Even when we get freaked out and we get anxious, it's not to add on top of that, oh, I, I can't, I don't, I better not get anxious. You know, that's part of being human, but to remember that uh, you have the capacity to come back to center and do whatever it takes to take a break so that you can do that for yourself and for everyone. Okay, any last comments from anyone who hasn't shared? Okay, I'll just, uh, before we do a, a loving kindness, read one, one passage uh, that I've read before and uh, from John Seed, who's this quite brilliant deep ecologist. He wrote this a few years ago. He said, uh, you know, in the end, um, when you look at the rate of destruction, whether it's of the rainforest or the ozone layer, the climate, all of these things that are happening, and if you were able to multiply all the efforts of conservationists by a factor of 10 or even 100, it might still not be enough. So there's nothing on the horizon that could help us, you might think. In the end, nothing but a miracle would be of any use at this time. And so then you think, well, what kind of a miracle would it take for things to be different? Well, it would be a very simple one, really. All that would be needed would be for human beings to wake up one day different than they were the day before, realizing that this is the end unless we make these changes, and then decide to make the change. That doesn't seem like a very likely thing to happen. But on the other hand, the whole road that we've traveled is so littered with miracles that it's only our strange kind of modern psyche that refuses to see it. I mean the miracle of being descended from a fish that chose to leave the water to walk on land. With a pedigree like that, anything is possible. <laughs> so let's, let's close with a loving kindness. And uh, just as you sit here, just get in touch with your own caring heart. How much you care about life, this planet, kindness, suffering. Just, that's the start. Just feel your capacity to care. And with that capacity to care, a centeredness that opens to the way things are at the same time. Remembering it's not up to you to fix the world, it's just up to you to do your part from joyous responsibility And then send some kind thoughts to yourself. 
appreciating your own sincerity and caring. May I see through confusion and fear to act wisely, compassionately. May I find peace and center within myself and share that with the world. And may I feel all the goodness and the love inside and share it well. May I wake up to the Buddha within, the Kuan Yin within, and then extending thoughts of well-wishing to all beings. As I want to be happy, may all find happiness and peace. May they all come to the end of suffering. And may our time here together be of benefit to not only ourselves, but everyone in our lives and all beings everywhere. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.